Well, happy Independence Day. I tried to make a habit of not calling it July 4th. That kind of loses the significance of what that day means. Um, but rather calling it Independence Day. You know, the, um, the, the true Independence Day of, of what we're talking about was July 2nd. And uh, yesterday. And that was the day that um, the independence was declared. All right. And then on the fourth, the final text of that declaration was agreed upon. And then it wasn't completely signed until August 2nd. So but July 4th is the day that wound up taking the holiday. And um, but the, but the 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 remembrance of it. And um, but for you and I. Let us always remember and keep in sight what we have been given. You know, Jesus said to him who's been given much, much is required. And you and I have been given much in this nation. We've been given an opportunity that m- many in the world do not have before them. I mean, right now you look at the country of China, they don't have the opportunities that we have or, or have had, Right. And that our ancestors had. And so going all the way back, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna get, I'm gonna do something tonight. We're gonna get into some scriptures, so don't worry. We're, we're not gonna just have a sermon without any Bible verses in it. We're gonna have plenty of those. You know me. That is, um, that is where we get our truth. Understand? And, um, but I want to remind you and take you back to the foundations of this nation and how this nation began and how the gospel came to these shores and some of the things that were prayed and prophesied about this nation way back at the beginning. And then coming all the way full circle to where we are today and, and the fact that what are we doing with what we've been given. So I'm going to just take you, it's not throwback Thursday but it's going to be way back Saturday, to Christopher Columbus, all right? And now obviously we know there was people here before Christopher Columbus. In fact, even the Vikings came over, but they weren't bringing the gospel with them. And um, finally, when Christopher Columbus came, you know, one of the things that's not taught much in, in schools or in history today, but if you'll go read his writings and what he wrote over that time, he believed that his assignment from God was to take the gospel to the whole world, and that is what drove him to go look and explore for new lands. That's why he thought, you know, if I can find a shortcut to India, it'll be a lot quicker to get there, and we'll be able to take the gospel to him. So he, he found some verses in Jeremiah and some other places that talk about taking peace to the whole world. And so this motivated him, and even though he had a lot of, of resistance in the beginning, he, he finally gets funded right, um, and he takes off and sails the ocean blue. Many of you probably remembered, some, or, you know, in school, there's that whole saying. And um, Christopher, you know, his name, his name means Christ bearer. Interesting. And then um, when he arrived on April or October 12th of 1492. And in, in recognition of the divine aid that they had just received in, in crossing the, the, the ocean, Columbus named that land San Salvador, which means Holy Savior. And, and right there, I mean, there's just, you know, there's so much evidence. It doesn't mean that everything he did was right and good, 
but we definitely see some of the things that were his motivating and driving forces. And so when they came ashore and they prayed, and this is what he prayed. He said, O Lord, almighty and everlasting God, by thy holy word, thou hast created the heaven and the earth and the sea. Blessed and glorified be thy name and praise be thy majesty, which hath designed to use us, thy humble servants, that thy holy names may be proclaimed in this second part of the earth. So here we see the very first time believers reached the other side. This was what it all began with and what he prayed. And in keeping with those Christian motives underlying what he was doing, he uh, he showed, at least in the beginning, he showed great concern for the natives whom they called Indians. Remember, he thought he got to India. He didn't realize where he was. And um, so he called them Indians. And, and this is what he wrote in his journal. He said, so that they might be well disposed towards us, for I knew that they were a people to be delivered and converted to our holy faith, rather by love than by force. I gave to some red caps and to others glass beads, which they hung around their neck and many other things. I believed that they would easily be made Christians, for it seemed to me that they had no religion of their own. So we see from the very beginning, right, of divine purpose in what was to take place. And we can now go fast forward and um, several hundred years to the very first permanent settlement that was in America. And um, that's known as Jamestown, Virginia, the very first settlement. And um, that settlement was dedicated to God for the expansion of the gospel. That was the purpose of it. And on April 26, 1607, the colonists landed down at Cape Henry, Virginia Beach is what we call it today. And Reverend Robert Hunt, he was the first pastor of Jamestown. He was on board the ship. He was with them. And when they landed at Tidewater Beach, Pastor Hunt called for three days of fasting and prayer and repentance of sins because they'd had some strife on the ship. And so he wanted to get this dealt with before we enter into what he believed was God's calling on them. And so three days later, on April 29th, crew members took timbers from the ship and, and they formed a cross with it. They drug it ashore and they planted it in the sand. And, and everyone from the ship, they got together and they knelt down beside the cross and Pastor Hunt prayed and this is what he said. He said, we do hereby dedicate this land and ourselves to reach the people within these shores with the gospel of Jesus Christ and to raise up godly generations after us, and with these generations take the kingdom of God to all the earth. May this covenant of dedication remain to all generations as long as this earth remains, and may this land along with England be evangelist to the world. May all who see this cross remember when we have what we have done here. May those who come here to inhabit join us in this covenant and in this most noble work that the Holy Scriptures may be fulfilled. So again, I'm talking to you about the foundations of our nation. The foundations of what began. What we have been given. And then he went on, you know, using covenant and prophetic language. Pastor Hunt declared this. He said, from these very shores, the gospel shall go forth, not only to this new world, but the entire world. Did that ever turn out to be true? In the United States, the believers in the United States have done more in missions work and humanitarian aid in all the world than any other nation or all other nations combined. 
And so the Lord was listening when he prayed and dedicated and said those things, declared those things. Well, 13 years later, that was in 1620. So now in 1630, we have the, um, I'm sorry, that was 1607. Now, fast forward to 1620, 13 years later, the pilgrims, they arrive at Plymouth Rock in Massachusetts. And who were the pilgrims? Well, the pilgrims, they were called separatists because they separated from the Anglican church. The, the official church in England. And the reason they separated from the official church in England because King James had called himself the head of the church and they said, no, there's only one head of the church. That's Jesus, so we can't go along with this. So there was a separation. And so they were called the separatists. There was another group called the Puritans and they wanted to stay part of the state church. They just wanted to bring purity back to the church. Right? So they both had, had good motives and they both had, had good angles on it. And there were two separate groups. There were the Puritans and then there were the separatists, what we call the pilgrims. And so they got into persecution over in England and they go to the Dutch and they flee the persecution and they spend a couple years there and they realize that, you know what, we're losing our children. The children are losing our culture. The children are losing our language and we don't like this. So we're going to go to, uh, the new world. And so they got a charter from the King of England to go over and be a part of the Virginia colony. Now, at that time, the Virginia colony extended all the way north to the Hudson River, which is at New York City now. And so they were going to land there at the mouth of the Hudson River, and and that was where they had their charter, is to go and be a part of that Virginia territory. And so they um, they set they set out with 101 people on the Mayflower. Originally, there was two ships, but due to some situations and sabotage, Only one ship ended up going with 101 people on it. They set sail September 6th of 1620. And two long months they sail through all kinds of storms and weather and problems until they reach um, the other shore. Now, with them, they had brought some adventurists and some people that were businessmen looking to make some money. And they called these people the strangers. And um, once they got to where they were going, because due to some storms and everything that had happened, they missed by several hundred miles where they intended to go, and they wound up way north. And so now they're up there at Plymouth Rock, and they're outside of the Virginia Territory. And these strangers that they called strangers were on the boat. They're saying, well, since we're not in the Virginia Territory... We're not going to listen to their laws and we're not going to do business with them. We're just going to go off and do our own thing. And so to keep that from happening, because they realized we need to band together to be able to survive up here on our own, the um, the pilgrims got together led by Bradford, who later turned out, or he was the governor. That was the first thing they did was put him in as governor. They got together and they, William Bradford and William Brewster led the team and they drafted the something called the Agreement Between the Settlers of New Plymouth. Now, today we call that the Mayflower Compact, right? And so they take a piece of paper, and for the very first time in this, in this land, they have drafted a paper that is going to rule men rather than a monarchy ruling people, agreeing to a set number of rules and laws. And this is how it read. I'm not going to read the whole thing to you, but I want you to catch the front part of it. They said this, in the name of God, amen. We whose names are underwritten, the loyal subjects of our dread sovereign Lord King James, by the grace of God of Great Britain, France, and Ireland, King and Defender of the Faith, having undertaken for the glory of God an advancement of the Christian faith, 
and the honor of our king and country a voyage to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia. Do by these precepts, solemnly and mutually, in the presence of God and one another, covenant and combine ourselves together into a civil civil body politic for our better ordering and preservation and furtherance of the ends aforesaid. And so one of those ends aforesaid was for the glory of God and for the furtherance of the gospel. And so we see here once again. So now we had we had Jamestown. Now we go further north to to the uh, the settlement Plymouth. Thank you. To the Plymouth settlement. Now we have the second settlement there. And once again, we see this same thing dedicated for the glory of God. And um, when they got off the, the ship, they, they reached the shore and they prayed and they thanked God for bringing them safely across what they termed the vast and furious ocean to the new life in the new world. Well, ten years later, 1630, now the group of Puritans decided to, I mean, there was like thousands of them that ended up coming, but there was a group of them that decided to come and they got a charter to go to, to New England, to Massachusetts, a little further north yet. And what they did is um, they had very similar things said about them. And I want to tell you a little bit about a sermon that, pa- that well, he wasn't a pastor, he was a lawyer, but John Withrop preached this famous sermon on the Arbella ship as they were on the way to the New World. And this is this is in 1630. And the sermon that he preached is called A Model of Christian Charity. You can find it online and read it. It's a good sermon. John Withrop, he was um, a lawyer, but he was also later the first governor. And this is the kind of things that he said. And that and in the, in the sermon he preached about and he and he talked about Christian virtues and he talked about faith and charity, love, justice and mercy and how all these things are the foundational bedrock of which on the new society is going to be built, must be built. And that if it wouldn't be built on that, it's not going to survive. And, you know, and he gives them this, this whole exhortation and he especially focuses on the Christ kind of love that gives to others and sacrifices from self. And, and this is what, one of the things he said. He said, the church of Christ consents for them to seek out a place of cohabitation under a civil and ecclesiastical form of government. The end of this project is for Christians to excel for themselves, their community, and in the service of Christ. Therefore, improving the world. You know, the service of Christ does improve the world. It means Christians must conform their work to the pursuit of the above end. They must love each other dutifully and care for their brethren as themselves. They must recognize that they have entered a covenant with God to do this work and are under His commission to fulfill it or receive punishment for failing. And he finished the sermon with this. He said, The Lord will be our God and delight to dwell among us as His own people and will command a blessing upon us in all our ways so that we shall see much more of His wisdom, power, and goodness and truth than formerly we have been acquainted with. We shall find that the God of Israel is among us when ten of us shall be able to resist a thousand of our enemies, when He shall make us a praise and glory that men shall say of seceding plantations, the Lord make it like that of New England. For we must consider that we shall be as a city upon a hill. The eyes of all people are upon us. 
so that if we shall deal falsely with our God in this work we have undertaken and so cause him to withdraw his present help from us, we shall be made a story and a byword through the world. We shall open the mouths of enemies to speak evil of the ways of God and all the professors for God's sake. We shall shame the faces of many of God's worthy servants and cause their prayers to be turned into curses upon us till we be consumed out of the good land whither we are going. So he recognized the importance that this day I place before you life and death and realizing blessing comes with one and death and cursing with the other one. So all of that, and then I'm not going to take the time to go into all of the things that happened between then and Independence Day. Of course, we have Rebecca here with us. Um, I asked her one time, you know, because she's from England. I said, um, you know, we have barbecues on July 4th. What do you do? She said, just cry and drink tea. <laughs> I love her sense of humor. So if you have been born in this country or if you've moved to this country and you, and you call this your country now, I want to do it because not all of us grew up here. Not all of us had the heritage of being born here, but some of us chose to come here. But either way, I want you to put your put your eyes on to what you and I have been given. You know, we can go all the way back to those those beginning things that I read. and We can go much further. We can go to the things that Jesus said uh, and what our purpose and, and plan is for us, and we can see that the people that came here first, they were in agreement with that. And down through the years, and it doesn't take, you don't have to be prophetic at all to look around and realize that our nation is in trouble, in deep trouble. And we've been seeing it for a number of years, and we've been praying, and we've been standing up, and people are waking up, and so so it's a good thing, but we cannot become discouraged in doing good, because we will reap if we don't faint is what the Word says. And there is a remnant, and that remnant's going to remain. And so we've been given, things have been built on a foundation, and so it's up to us to preserve those things that have been built on the Word of God, His commission, standing on those things. You know, if, if I went on a trip and I went to a faraway journey, I'm going to give you a parable like Jesus gave about the rich men or the talents and the servants, right? But if I went on a faraway journey and, and, and I gave to, to Mike, I said, my house, you take care of it, you watch over it, you make sure everything stays in order in my house while I'm away. Now, if I go away and while I'm away, a bunch of other people come in, squatters move into the house, they loot the place, they kick out the windows, and Mike just allows it. Well, I'm going to come home and not have a, I'm not going to have a problem with the squatters, I'm going to have a problem with Mike, right? Because I gave it to him to look after, right? He's the one that's responsible. Well, in the same way, if you are in this nation today, you have been given this house to take care of. You've been given this house to give to your children and their children's children. This is a heritage. It's not just for you, but it's for generations from now. A nation that is still taking the gospel to the world. What are you and I doing for it? Are we going to lie down and just let it go away? Or are we going to rise up and are we going to fight? Are we willing to give our lives in honor for the sake of the gospel? And, and I want to be clear. No, the United States is not the same thing as the gospel. All right. However, we have been given this nation. It is a government of the people, for the people, by the people. 
right? And so we don't have kings here. We don't, even though some people like to act like kings here, (laughs) but we don't have kings here, right? It is our responsibility to put righteous people in those positions and in those civil serving positions. And we have to make sure that we're doing what we're supposed to do. Now, if I go to Mike and if Mike has done everything he could, I mean, he fought and bled trying to keep the people out of my house and they overwhelmed him. I mean, 200 of them piled on him, handcuffed him and hauled him away. When I come back, do you think I'd have a problem with Mike? No, I'd be, let's go get him. Right. Because he did everything he could. I'd go find him and rescue him. So even if there are some battles we lose, we cannot lose them without us having done all that we can do. All right. So that being said, I'm going to do something that maybe you have never heard done in a in a church service before. And I'm going to read to you the Declaration of Independence. And um, if you were with us in uh, five, five years ago, I did this as well. I read the Declaration of Independence. That's the first time I'd ever heard of anyone doing that in a church service. So now this is the second time I've ever heard of anyone doing that in a church service. (laughs) So there are words in here that you have to go into the dictionary and look up to figure out what they mean. Um, But if you don't know what they mean, just smile and nod in agreement. Everyone will think you're real smart. (laughs) When in the course of human events... It becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. Basically, when you're going to separate something, you better have good reason and you better state those reasons. That's all they're saying. And they're recognizing that it's, it's, we have a God, right? There's nature and there's nature's God. Nature is not God. We hold these truths to be self-evident. Now, just to interrupt again, you understand that our founding fathers, the most cited book, the most cited material that our founding fathers cited in all of their writings, you can go collect all their writings, and it's in the thousands is Scripture verses. The next closest person cited, I think, is Blackstone, who is a lawyer. Locke, yes. And, and it, there's, it's not even close. It's like hundreds and thousands. And so our founding fathers, very, they, they knew, the, even though, because not all of them were believers, many of them were, and even the ones that were not, take, for example, Benjamin Franklin. If you would listen to him speak, there was so much scripture in his language that he would make most of us look like unbelievers. If you listened to us and then went and listened to him, and he wasn't even a believer. But the truth of God's word, that foundation, those principles God put in motion, people were acting on and they worked for them. Now, obviously, we just don't want people to put principles of God in motion, but not actually serve him. That's a tragedy, right? We want to make sure that they come into the kingdom of light and then Those principles are evident through their life. So these truths that they claimed were so self-evident, the reason they believed them to be self-evident is because they read their Bible. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, 
liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Notice it doesn't say the guarantee to be happy. Just the right to pursue being happy. That's what it was. That to secure these rights, the rights of life, liberty, and happiness, governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Well, where can we find Scripture for that? That's Romans 13. Government is ordained by God to do what? Punish the evildoer, bless those who do good. In fact, the word, or it says they are God's ministers, God's deacons is the word. Alright? It is an ordained position, but it's only of God as long as it is operating within His framework of what good government is and does. If it gets outside of that framework, it now no longer has God's blessing upon it any more than a good father, if he becomes a bad father, has God's blessing on that fatherhood role. Right? I better stop interrupting or else we're going to be here all night. Because I still have a message to preach. Alright, from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its power in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, all experience hath shown that mankind are more, more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. Very true. We just saw that in 2020 very, very much. Most people will just go along to get along rather than putting up the fight and saying, no, this isn't right. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations, pursuing invariably the same object, evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism. Is that how you say that? Alright. Someone has it memorized. It is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government, to provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies and such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. The history of the present king of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. Remember in the beginning they said we shouldn't separate if we're not willing to produce the facts. And they produced 27 reasons on why they are saying enough is enough. Here's what reason number one is. He has refused his assent to laws the most wholesome and necessary for the public good. Number two, he has forbidden his governors to pass laws of immediate and pressing importance unless suspended in their operation till his assent should be obtained. And when so suspended, he has utterly neglected to attend to them. Number three, he has refused to pass other laws for the accommodation of large districts of people unless these people would relinquish the right of representation in the legislature. A right inestimable, inestimable, anyhow, it's a word, to them, <laughs> and formidable to tyrants only. So basically, he refused to sign 
the laws and things that were being passed over here. He refused to recognize those things. Sounds real familiar, doesn't it? Just, just recently, Governor Wolf refusing to sign all kinds of good laws that our legislator has been sending to him. But his day's coming. Number four, he has called together legislative bodies at places unusual, uncomfortable, and distant from the depository of their public records for the sole purpose of fatiguing them into compliance with his measures. He would say, sure, okay, fine. Come over here to England and we'll decide it here. But really, we can't all get on a boat for two months, travel to you to make a one-day conversation, to get on a boat two months, to go back home. No, no. see, making it hard and unusual. Number five, he has dissolved representative houses repeatedly for opposing with manly firmness his invasion on the rights of the people. I know, I like that too. Manly firmness. He has refused for a long time after such dissolutions to cause others to be elected, whereby the legislative powers incapable of annihilation have returned to the people at large for their exercise. The state remained in the meantime exposed to all the dangers of invasion from without and convulsions within. Kind of like when people riot in the streets and they don't do anything about it. He has endeavored to prevent the population of these states for that purpose, obstructing the laws of naturalization of foreigners, refusing to pass others to encourage their migration hither, and raising the conditions of new appropriations of land. Number eight, he has obstructed the administration of justice by refusing his assent to laws for establishing judiciary powers. So judges were unable to rule because he wouldn't cooperate. Number nine, he has made judges dependent on his will alone for the tenure of their offices and the amount and payment of their salaries. Number ten, he erected a multitude of new offices and sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people and eat out their substance and close down their restaurants. Oh, that's not in there, but you get the drift. It's time for another declaration. Number 11, I suppose if they heard me say this, they'd take away our 501c3 and whatever. Well, I dare them, all right? In fact, some of you don't know this. Some of you have asked and said, well, you know, what about that? Well, actually, several years back, we took a video and recorded ourselves of breaking all the rules. We mailed it to the IRS, and we said, prosecute us. Try. And naturally, they didn't take the bait because it's not a winnable cause. So are we afraid to say things they don't want us to say? No, because we're going to obey God rather than man. They're not going to tell us what we can say from the pulpit. Number 11, he has kept among us in times of peace, standing armies without the consent of our legislators. Number 12, he has affected to render the military independent of and superior to the civil power. Number 13, he has combined with others to subject us to a Jurisdiction foreign to our Constitution and unacknowledged by our laws, giving his assent to their acts of pretended legislation. Number 14, for quartering large bodies of armed troops among us. Number 15, for protecting them by a mock trial from punishment for any murders which they should commit on the inhabitations of these states. Remember one time they showed up and tried to take a bunch of weapons away at a weapons depot, and the fight broke out, and they shot into a crowd of people, called the shot heard around the world. 
Number 16, for cutting off our trade with all parts of the world. Number 17, for imposing taxes on us without our consent. That's the one you hear most nowadays, and it's number 17 on the list. It, it wasn't one of the top ones, even though, you know, we, we hear about it because, we, well, they didn't like the tea tax, so that was why they went and did what they did in the Boston Tea Party and, and all of those things. And um, it, it certainly was one of the reasons, but it was number 17 on the list. Number 18, for depriving us in many cases of the benefits of trial by jury. Number 19, for transporting us beyond seas to be tried for pretended offenses. Number 20, for abolishing the free system of English laws in a neighboring province, establishing therein an arbitrary government and enlarging its boundaries so as to render it at once an example and fit instrument for introducing the same absolute rule in these colonies. Number 21, for taking away our charters, abolishing our most valuable laws and altering fundamentally the forms of our governments. Number 22, for suspending our own legislators and declaring themselves invested with power to legislate for us in all cases whatsoever. Number 23, he has, which number 22 is what happened here in 2020 as well. State of emergency, all of a sudden I have all power and authority, Governor Wolf and his health secretary to say whatever and do whatever and make all these laws and rules. And the legislator said, no, you can't do that. He goes, nope, you guys can't, don't have to say. It's just lawlessness is what this was and in, in, in what it was in 2020 as well. Number 23, he has abdicated government here by declaring us out of his protection and waging war against us. Number 24, he has plundered our seas, ravaging our coasts, burnt our towns, and destroyed the lives of our people. Number 25, he is at this time transporting large armies of foreign mercenaries to complete the works of death, desolation, and tyranny already begun with circumstances of cruelty and perfidy scarcely paralleled in the most barbarous ages and totally unworthy the head of a civilized nation. Number 26, he has constrained our fellow citizens, taken captive on the high seas to bear arms against their country, to become the executioners of their friends and brethren or to fall themselves by their hands. They would capture merchant ships and things and take the, the people that were on it and say, okay, now you're going to fight for us or, or face the sword yourself. Number 27, he has excited domestic insurrections amongst us and has endeavored to bring on the inhabitations of our frontiers, the merciless Indian savages whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. And then they say this. That was 27 reasons. It says, in every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. A prince whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. Nor have we been wanting in attentions to our British brethren. We have warned them from time to time of attempts by their legislator to extend an unwarrantable jurisdiction over us. We have reminded them of the circumstances of our immigration and settlement here. We have appealed to their native justice and magnanimity and have conjured them by the ties of our common kindred to disavow these usurpations, which have inevitably interrupt our connections and correspondence. They too have been deaf to the voice of justice and consanguinity. We must therefore acquiesce in the necessity which denounces our separation and hold them as we hold the rest of mankind, enemies in war, in peace, friends. 
We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America in general Congress assembled, appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, do in the name and by the authority of the good people of these colonies solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connections between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved, and that as free and independent states, they have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and to do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do. And... For the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. And John Hancock, as president and attested by Charles Thompson, the secretary, there were 56 signers from the 13 colonies that signed this this declaration. Some of them were were ministers, reverends, some were lawyers. I'm going to read you their names because, again, I'll bet you've not heard them before. New Hampshire was Josiah Bartlett, William Whipple, and Matthew Thornton. Massachusetts Bay was Samuel Adams, John Adams, Robert Treat Payne, and Eldridge Jerry. Rhode Island, Stephen Hopkins, William Ellery. Connecticut, Roger Sherman, Samuel Huntington, William Williams, Oliver Wolcott. Georgia was Button Gwinnett, Lyman Hall, and Geo Walton. Maryland, Samuel Chase, William Paca, Thomas Stone, Charles Carroll of, Carol- of Carrollington. Virginia was George Withy, Richard Henry Lee, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Harrison, Thomas Nelson Jr., Francis Lightfoot Lee, and Carter Braxton. New York, William Floyd, Philip Livingston, Francis Lewis, Lewis Morris. Pennsylvania, Robert Morris, Benjamin Rush, Benjamin Franklin, John Morton, George Clymer, James Smith, George Taylor, James Wilson, George Ross. Delaware, with Cesar Rodney, George Reed, and Thomas McKean. North Carolina, William Hooper, Joseph Hughes, John Penn. South Carolina, Edward Rutledge, Thomas Haywood, Jr., Thomas Lynch, Jr., and Arthur Middleton. New Jersey gave us Richard Stockton, John Witherspoon, Francis Hopkins, John Hart, and Abram Clark. Those men, they pledged their fortunes, their finances, their honor, one of them, I think it was Benjamin Franklin that said, we all better hang hang together or we'll hang separately, something like that. And um, they understood that their chance of winning that battle was an ice cube's chance in hell. Like, it, it's not going to happen. It'd be like Hawaii saying, we're going to fight the United States and win. Yeah, right. Great Britain was a superpower at that time. In fact, that flag um, over here with the the white one with the with the tree on it, the evergreen tree, says an appeal to heaven on it. If if you could see the whole flag, you could read it. And that flag was the flag that George Washington first flew 
on his first ship, I believe, when at one of the first battles. And the reason he put that flag up was because he recognized that our only hope was an appeal to heaven. Because in the natural, it's not happening. <laughs> and yet, it did happen. And I believe if you go back to the beginning, which I took the time to show you of when they first came to these lands and dedicated these lands, I believe that had a very, very large part in why they were successful. Because it was for the sake of the Gospel. And if we ever get away from that in this land, we will also continue to slide down the tubes and lose everything. Let's go to Matthew 5. I'm not changing gears. I'm not changing subjects. I want you to stay in the mindset of, of what we've been talking about. And, and I've been teaching you a series called Living in the Light and Loving It. And we've talked about how to live in the light and we've answered that from many different ways. And one of the ways that we looked at is found in James 1.22 where it says to be a doer of the Word, not a hearer only deceiving yourself, but we have to hear it and do it. Okay, and in Matthew 5 is our text that we've been using. Matthew 5, and I'm going to read in verse 13 this time, starting in 13. You are the salt of the earth. Say, I am the salt of the earth. I am salty. <laughs> Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled on by men. You are the light of the world. Say, I am the light of the world. It must be true because Jesus said it. Right? You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine. Your light. See, he identifies it with you again. Your light. Well, remember, your light is your light because you accepted His light within you. And His light became your light. So let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. People are supposed to see your good works. That doesn't mean you have to go tell them. No, they're supposed to see them. If they're blind, you can tell them, I guess. But other than that, they're going to see them. Right? You will do good works. They will see them. And then they will give glory to your Father in heaven. Let's go over to Isaiah 59. Living in the light. You know, one of the phrases out of that famous sermon that I read to you from that Puritan lawyer, I read bits and pieces of it to you. One of the statements he made is that we are to be a city on a hill and all eyes are upon us. And that statement is used by many politicians. It's been quoted many times throughout different speeches from um, Ronald Reagan, uh, George Washington, uh, Barack Obama, George W. Bush, on and on and on and on. Ted Cruz, I heard him use it. Uh, different people have, have used it in their speeches, this statement about being a city on a hill. And being a city on a hill is more than just talking about our nation, we see right here where they get that statement, where it originally comes from, is from the mouth of Jesus. That that's what you and I are supposed to be, like a city on a hill. And a city on a hill is not hidden. It's not invisible. People know it's there. People see it from far away. That's how we're supposed to be. 
because of the light within us. And in Isaiah 59, I'm going to begin reading to you. I want you to to listen with the ears of us today in our land. Okay, Isaiah, the prophet, he delivered these prophecies for their time back then. But prophecy often carries multiple timelines within it. And it was for them then, and it's also for a future time. And I believe that it fits so well and it's so prophetic for our time today and even now. And starting in verse 14 of chapter 59, he says, Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far off. For truth has stumbled in the public square and honesty cannot enter. Truth is missing and whoever turns from evil is plundered. The Lord saw that there was no justice and He was offended. I mean, does that ever sound like today or what? Right? Where it's just everything's a lie pretty much. And in in verse 16, He makes this statement, He saw that there was no man. And He was amazed that there was no one interceding. So His own arm brought salvation and His own righteousness support Him. When something surprises the Lord... We should take notice. And he was shocked that there was no one interceding. There's not even one person, he says. There's another time that Jesus was was surprised or impressed, and that was with someone's faith. Greater faith than this have I not found in all of Israel. And he was amazed at his faith. So you can amaze him with your faith. You can also amaze him with your absence. And in fact, a very similar scripture, you don't need to turn there, but is, is a few chapters later in Isaiah 63, 5. He says, I looked and there was no one to help and I was amazed that no one assisted. Again, he was amazed. He just expected someone would be there. Someone to stand in the gap. Well, obviously this kind of language implies that if someone had been standing there in the gap, something different would have happened. It would have made a difference. And, and, and truly, we can look all through the Old Testament and again and again and again and again we see stories of people standing in the gap. We see Moses standing between the Lord and the people when the Lord said, I'm done with them. I'm going to wipe them out and start over with you, Moses. Moses intercedes with God, appeals to the covenant God had made, and God relents and goes, okay, you're right. We see the high priest standing between the living and the dead out in the wilderness. And he interceded and he stopped. And again and again through Scripture, we see this happening of someone standing in the gap. We watch Abraham standing in the gap for Sodom and Gomorrah. He just simply didn't come low enough. He came down to a few people and there wasn't that many people. So the Lord actually rescued the people that it was. Right? Let's keep reading in 17. So, so he put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and he wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. Thus he will repay according to their deeds fury to his enemies and retribution to his foes and he will repay the coastlands. They will fear the name of the Lord in the west and his glory in the east for they will come like a rushing stream driven by the wind of the Lord. The Redeemer will come to Zion and to those in Jacob who turn from transgression. This is the Lord's declaration. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My Spirit who is on you and my words that I put in your mouth will not depart from your mouth and from the mouth of your children or from the mouth of your children's children from now on and forever, says the Lord. Arise! Shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord shines 
over you. For look, darkness covers the earth and total darkness the peoples, but the Lord will shine over you and His glory will appear over you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your radiance. Raise your eyes and look around. They all gather and come to you. Your sons will come from far away and your daughters will be carried on the ship. Then you will see and be radiant and your heart will tremble and expand because the riches of the sea will become yours and the wealth of the nations will come to you. And he goes on talking about how the entire Middle East is going to come to the light of the gospel. And we have this, we see that, you know, he was looking forward to the time that Christ comes, which includes our time now. We're living in a time, and if you read that next language, you know, he talks about those who fly like a cloud and fly like a bird to the windows. What well, they didn't even have airplanes back then, but now we do. We fly to those regions. Just like a bird. And it's so, it's so prophetic, this beautiful picture that he lays out of what's going to happen. And let's back up to Isaiah 58 now. Isaiah 58, and I'm going to read the whole chapter to you. Starting in verse 1. Cry out loudly. Don't hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Tell my people their transgressions and the house of Jacob their sins. They seek me day after day and delight to know my ways like a nation that does what is right and does not abandon the justice of their God. They ask me for righteous judgments. They delight in the nearness of God. Why have we fasted, but you have not seen? We have denied ourselves, but you have not noticed. Look, you do as you... So they're asking the Lord, why have we fasted? Why have we denied ourselves? But you don't seem to be noticing. And the Lord responds, look, you do as you please on the day of your fast and oppress all your workers. You fast with contention and strife to strike viciously with your fist. You cannot fast as you do today, hoping to make your voice heard on high. See, we don't fast to try to get God to hear us. That's not the purpose of fasting. Verse 5 Will the fast I choose be like this? A day for a person to deny himself, to bow his head like a reed, and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? He's asking a question. And then he, he asks another question, implying his answer as he goes. He says, isn't the fast I choose to break the chains of wickedness, to untie the ropes of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, and to tear off every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the poor and homeless into your house, to clothe the naked when you see him, and to not ignore your own flesh and blood? Then listen to verse 8. We're talking about being the light of the world. Living in the light and loving it. Then your light will appear like the dawn, and your recovery will come quickly. Your righteousness will go before you, and the Lord's glory will be your rear guard. The Lord's glory be your guard. Now that's awesome. Your rear guard. The place you can't see. Right? The, the unseen danger is what He's protecting you from. And then, and notice that this was after their good works. See, we don't get to heaven on our good works. That is solely only in the name of Jesus. And if you believe He's been raised from the dead and is seated at the right hand of the Father and you name Him your Lord, then that is what divides the sheep from the goats. The rest of this, we're talking about our purpose on the earth today. That we are to bring the will of heaven to the earth. That we are, like Jesus taught the disciples to pray, our Father who art in heaven, 
Holy be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So his will as it's done in heaven, should be being done on earth. That's how we ought to pray it out. And that's the actions we ought to be taking. And when we do that, suddenly, people all around you are going to need sunglasses. Verse 9, At that time, when you call, the Lord will answer. When you cry out, He will say, Here I am. If I get rid of the yoke from those around you, the finger pointing and malicious speaking, you know, that is a yoke. Finger pointing and strife. Malicious speaking. It is yoke. It is bondage. Man, get rid of that. And if you offer yourself to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted one, then your light will shine in the darkness and your night will be like noonday. The Lord will always lead you. That means that when you, when you need direction from the Lord, He's going to lead you. He's not going to leave you answerless. He's going to satisfy you in a parched land. In other words, if you go into the wilderness, you're still satisfied. Your conditions are, or let me say it this way, your provision is not dependent upon the conditions that surround you. He says, and strengthen your bones. You will be like a watered garden and like a spring whose waters never run dry. Some of you will rebuild the ancient ruins. You will restore the foundations laid long ago. You will be called the repairer of broken walls. The restorer of streets where people live. That right there is where we've been coming to this whole night. Some of you. What were the foundations that were put into our nation? Those people that arrived at our shores and prayed and dedicated this land to the Lord. There was foundations put in place. The walls were built. But between then and now, the walls have crumbled and the foundations have cracked and in some places been removed. And you and I have to restore and rebuild in the name of our Lord those righteous foundations that were once there. Some of you will rebuild the ancient ruins. You will restore the foundations laid long ago. You will be called the repairer of broken walls. I believe we have some repair of broken walls here tonight. You will be called the restorer of streets where people live. If you keep from desecrating the Sabbath and from doing whatever you want on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways, seeking your own pleasure or talking too much, then you will delight yourself in the Lord. And I will make you ride over the heights of the land Right over the heights of the land. See, he was already looking forward to airplanes. And let you enjoy the heritage of your father Jacob, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You know, you don't need to turn now, read it to you, but in Jeremiah 5, verse 1, this is what the Lord said. He said, Roam through the streets of Jerusalem. Look and take note, because he just got done pronouncing judgment on Jerusalem. So go wander around in the streets of Jerusalem. Look and take note. Search in her squares. If you find one person, anyone who acts justly, who seeks to be faithful, then I will forgive her. One person can make the difference. But yet, Jesus said that where two or three are gathered, He's there. That where two or three agree on anything, is touching anything, it'll be done for them. Where two or three, whatever they bind, it'll be bound. And whatever they loose, it'll be loose. 
I mean, we have straight from our Father's mouth because Jesus was speaking what He heard the Father say. Direction on what, how and what we should do. You know, God is still the same God. He's still looking for someone to stand in the gap. Someone to make up the hedge. Someone to make the difference. And that's you and I. I believe it. Someone, someone say, that's me. This week I was... Had a spirit of prayer come on me and, and just sit on me for several days. And I, the Lord said to me, He said, I want you to go get a pen and a paper. And He said, I want you to write down what I tell you. And then read it exactly as I gave it to you. So it's exactly as I wrote it down. So I just started praying. The Lord gave me line after line after line, and I just wrote them down. This is what he says. The remnant is smaller than you think, yet mightier than you realize. I have salt in the earth that shines brightly with my glory. They will increase in their shining until the whole world will know of my glory. Do not be afraid of the nations that are plotting evil and trying to corrupt my people. I am with you and I overshadow all those who are swift to obey and faithful to my commands. I am watching over my remnant with a keen eye and my arm is stretched out to establish my purposes through my people. Do not look to man to save you. Do not look to methods for deliverance. Instead, look to me and I will fulfill all my promises to you and not one will go unfulfilled. You need to be patient. You need to be persistent. You need to remain faithful to the things which I've called you. The rain will come. The storms will blow. But my light will not be shaken or subdued. I will shine ever brighter and become undeniable in my brightness. People will look and see. They will know that I am not mocked and that I am. I am releasing waves of revival that will grow and overtake one another. You will see my power and my holiness on full display. I am coming to my church in power and in might. I am coming with glory. So purpose in your heart that you will not look to the left or right. You will not be distracted by the noise and by those clamoring for your attention with outrageous announcements and devious plans. For they will surely be swept away and all those that fellowship with them. Determine to pay the price and to do whatever it takes to abide in Me and remain in My purposes. I've heard your prayers. I've listened to My remnant's requests. And I will answer in strange, unusual, and in, unex in unexpected ways. I am the God of victory at the Red Sea. I am the Alpha and Omega. I am. And I watch. I listen. I am swift to respond to my remnant. So ask me for that which is impossible for you. Ask me for my thoughts to be your thoughts. Ask me for my desires and act upon them. Look expectantly to me, for I am standing at the door, and I have been waiting for this hour to reveal my glory in the earth. I will give you unnatural boldness to speak and do what I will show you. People will stand in wonder and amazement because I will thunder from heaven, and my remnant will hear and understand my words and my purposes and their assignments with clarity. 
you will see a wave of house ecclesias popping up like you've not seen in your lifetime. I am releasing a new wave of ministering gifts to my people. You will see the rise of the prophetic evangelist, the wonder-working apostolic, and the shepherds that feed and liberate my flock. I will frustrate the plans of the enemy for my remnant's sake. When disaster comes near, I will be with you and you will remain confident in my shadow. You will not be at the mercy of the destroyer. My remnant will go from the few to the many. Be willing. Be ready. I will accomplish it quickly in its time. Psalms 22, 27, and 28 say this. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. So I saw something else. And it's a bit unusual. Maybe, maybe it's not unusual if you go to a different house of worship, but you don't, we don't normally do this in our house. Is I saw everyone, or those that can, everyone kneeling. So I'm just going to invite you to kneel with me. We're going to pray. And we're going to come before the Lord. And our kneeling is just a sign of submission to Him and of His Lordship. If you're unable to kneel, if you have some physical reason that you can't kneel, just kneel in your heart, okay? <laughs> and um, let's pray. You know, Father, You said You said that if Your people would humble themselves and if they would repent, if they'd turn to You and if they acknowledge where they blew it. And Father, we know that there's many times in the past that we've blown it and things are where they are because we the church have, have not taken our place that you designed us to take. And, and Father, we, we have repented of that. We've forsaken those ways. We have set our face and purpose that we're going to do as you direct us. That you come first above all things. That your plan, that your purposes in this nation will prevail. That your word will go forth from these shores like they did before. That your word will come and saturate this land. That this land would be healed, Father. I ask you, Lord, to work signs and wonders in this land. To bring righteousness back to this land. Father, I lift up all the those that are in, in civil government in this land. Father, from the very top office, the president, all the way to our mayors and everything between our governors, our school boards, our, our Senate, our House of Representatives, and in all of our different states and places. Father, our judges. Lord, we just commit this nation and this land to you. You said wherever our foot treads, it belongs to us. And Father, we've been back and forth, up and down in this land, and we declare that this land, these United States of America, are still yours. We still declare you as king. We still declare that we serve you and only you. Father, I ask you to confirm your word as it's preached. I ask you to bring forth a harvest of souls in this land. This revival that you've, you've told us about for years now. Lord, I call forth wave upon wave of revival in this land. I thank you, Lord, that you touch men and women's hearts. That you touch our children's hearts. That this revival will flow even through our young people, through our young adults, through our children. Lord, that even in our universities, these places that have, have been so inspired, 
unspeakably evil, Father, that your spirit would break forth and that signs and wonders will be done and people will stand in amazement and say, well, who is this God? And they will recognize there is a God. There is a one true God. Father, I thank you for these things. I ask you for opportunities for us in this house. Opportunities to be the light that you've created us to be. Opportunities to do the good works. And I know that there's an abundance of opportunities. Father, give us eyes to recognize them. Give us the heart to know the moments. The God-ordained moments that you bring to our to, into our possession. Father, I ask you to stir in us in a mighty way that we would just have, you would just burst forth within us and that we would recognize with a boldness that we haven't before that this is you, Lord, and that you want to do this. Lord, I ask you for this boldness. I ask for this boldness in your church in all the earth, in your church in our nation, in your church in Pennsylvania, and here in Lancaster. Father, I thank you that you have not forgotten us, that you said your ears are open, that your ears open to the righteous. So, Lord, I ask these things. I expect fully that they will come to pass. Father, I believe that you have graced us and enabled us and given us all things that we need to accomplish life and godliness in the earth today. And I believe we're going to see it, Father, and I thank you for it. And I ask you for even more grace. I ask you for a greater awareness of your presence for us, for your church. I ask you, Lord, that you would work in and through us strongly. Lord, that in the moment when you prompt us, that we would not hesitate, that we would give you prompt, swift obedience. And I thank you, Lord, for in that moment coming and touching those people that we minister to and, and that your anointing would just come upon them, that your spirit would convict them, that your spirit would draw these people to you, to a close relationship to you. Father, the church, the, the church body that has has been lukewarm and has not been serving you. Father, I ask you to give them more opportunity. I ask by your Spirit to, to strongly impress upon them the need of the hour and what you want to do and, and how they should be a part of it. I ask you to grant them repentance, the ability to change, Father, from the way they have been to the way you want them to be. And I call this land blessed. I call this church blessed. I call the church in Pennsylvania, the church in these United States of America, blessed and prosperous. That church, you will go forth and declare the mighty works of Jesus Christ. That you will declare and testify of the goodness of God to you, the church. And it shall fall upon ripe ears. And the harvest will come in and we will experience revival as never before in this land, I thank you for it, Father. I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Well, the next thing left to do is let's get up and rejoice about it. We have assignment. We have the great commission given to us to go into all the world. And he says, start right at home. Right. So let, let's do that. Let's be a people of prayer. My house will be called a house of prayer, he said. Let's be a people that their good works are seen from all around. Let's be the kind of people that, like Jesus said, everyone will know you're my disciples because of the love you have for each other. All right, let that be our calling card. Our good works will glorify the Father in heaven. All right, John. 
Good news is we don't have to do that in our own strength. But we can do it by the grace of God. Amen. He enables us. So how's everybody doing? Good? Praise God. Okay. Wow. All right, Steve. Father, we do adore you and we bless you. We're so grateful that we get to call you daddy. We're so glad, Father, that you made a way for us to have relationship with you. And we just exalt you. And I thank you, Lord, that you've been good to us in every way. That you've blessed us, not only with life eternal, but Lord, you've given to us health and you've given prosperity and abilities to us and you've given us opportunity and and you've given us friends and family father you've been so good to us thank you for giving us these united states thank you lord that you have your mercy has been new every morning for us thank you lord that you are so good to all of us you know i'm grateful that the Word says He's given to us all things that are required for life and for godliness. And one of the things that's required for life is health. And I know that I've been hearing reports of a number of people that have been uh, having symptoms of, you know, sore throats and colds and things like that. And, and my wife is one of them. That's why she's not here with us tonight. And so uh, let's just pray and take a moment and pray over all of them. Father, I lift all of these up that are experiencing these symptoms to you. And I thank you, Lord, that you are stronger than any kind of sickness. And that you've promised to forgive all our iniquities and to heal all our diseases. So therefore, we call them healed in the name of Jesus. Whole and at full strength. Lord, I thank you that you have given us the law of the spirit of life and have set us free from the law of sin and death and all that comes with it. So let's just say it together. I am free, I am free from the law of sin and death. From the law of sin and death. I have been liberated, have been liberated by, the law by the law of the Spirit of life, the Spirit of life. In, Christ Jesus. in Christ Jesus. All right, well, one way we love God at Church of the Word International is we hug on each other, we love each other, we check up on each other. Is there anything I can pray with you? So I'll give you opportunity to do that. Everyone is also invited downstairs for a time of fellowship and finger food.
Good evening, everyone. Welcome to our 4th of July weekend here at Church of the Word International at Lancaster, Pennsylvania. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Glad that you're all here. While wow, you're celebrating the freedom that was fought for each and every one of us on the cross and in our country, we have so much to be grateful for here in America. You know, as I was looking at um, the book of Psalms and asking the Lord what he would want me to encourage you tonight in your worship, it, it just made me realize every single word of God is full of power. It's full of freedom. It's full of life. It's full of the spirit. Every time you open this book and read it, it, does, it changes you. It does something. Amen? In Psalms 145, listen to this, these words. They're so powerful. This is a praise of David. I will exalt you, my God, my king, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you. Every day I will bless you. And I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your majesty acts. I will meditate on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works. Men shall speak of the might of your awesome acts and I will declare your greatness. They shall utter the memory of your great goodness and shall sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious. Is he gracious to you? And full of compassion, slow to anger, and great in mercy. And his tender mercies are over all his works. All your works shall praise you, O Lord. Let's stand together and praise the Lord. Thank him for who he is in our life, our Lord and Savior. And praise him for all the wonderful things he's done our whole life. Amen. Amen. Whom the sun sets free is free. Amen. That sounded weak. I know we don't have a full crowd, though. Praise God. I'm glad for my freedom. I don't know about you guys. But, you know, we live in a country where we have a lot of freedom. But, I mean, the, the depth of freedom is in God. Amen. Go ahead. Jesus, Jesus, 
Jesus, you spoke of yourself and said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. No one has eternal life. No one has all their sins forgiven. No one is delivered from the power of the enemy. No one is completely healed. All that comes from Jesus. Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life. And we embrace that word. We embrace that scripture. We embrace it in our heart. It's part of us. You are the one true God. And we love you. We honor you. We thank you. Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Jesus, our Master and King of kings and Lord of lords. We lift you up. We honor you. We celebrate you tonight. We thank you as you move among your body. You are the head of the church. We are the body. Move among us. Speak to us sovereignly tonight. Touch our bodies. Touch our hearts. We give you permission to move and come and celebrate you, Lord Jesus. You are so welcome in this place. Say, Jesus, you are welcome in this place. Amen. Well, one way we love God is by loving one another. So turn to your neighbor and say, I'm so glad you're here tonight. Praise the Lord. The children may be dismissed at this time. Well, good evening. It is a good evening, and I trust it's like morning in your heart, though. Full of the life of God. You know, when... The sun sets us free, well then we are free indeed. And, and sometimes you have to tell your feelings to get in line with that freedom, right? But always stay anchored in the truth of who you are and whose you are. Amen? Well, we're going to prepare to receive the uh, tithe and the offering and return our tithes to the Lord, give an offering to the Lord, whichever you're doing today. And I'm going to read to you, if you need an envelope for your giving, just raise your hand real high and our ushers will bring one to you. Also, um, well, maybe I shouldn't do it all at one time because we'll get confused about whose hand is who. So if you need an envelope, just wave at one of our ushers. All right, up here we have one. Back there we have one. And then, are, is there anyone here with us for the first time tonight? Raise your hand. Oh, right back here, over here. Let's give them a hand. So they'll bring a little uh, card to you if you keep your hand up and you can fill it out and put it into the offering basket and we'll know, uh, we'll know a little bit about you. And if there's a place on there for you to fill out a prayer request, if you have a prayer request. And um, we have uh, a lot of people are away traveling this weekend. And so we just declare... Uh, peace and safety over everyone that's out and about, and uh, I'm glad that you guys are more mindful of those that are here. I'm not saying those that aren't here aren't. Don't hear it that way. Um, but those of you that have made effort to come, you're mindful of the Lord and not of barbecue grills and all the things that come with that, right? So you've set time aside, you've come, so God bless you for it. And uh, also give a special thank you, or a thank, yes, a special thank you and a welcome to uh, the, to Jacob and Nicole. Welcome back home. <laughs> Jacob is uh, stationed in, in, in the Air Force over the ocean, vast and blue. 
And so occasionally they get to come home. So it's always good to see you guys. All right, in Philippians chapter 4, let's go down and I'm just going to read to you in verse, um, let's see here. uh, Let's just start in verse 13 because this is a fun verse. We all like to say it. Now, recognize that this whole portion is about finances and that is the um, context here is finances. He says, I am able to do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So if you ever come up against a financial struggle, especially when it involves carrying out the work of the Lord, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That is the literal context of how he's using it. All right. We use it for all kinds of things, how to pass tests, how to run races, how to get our work done. Right. Anything we don't know how to do, we use this verse. I can do all things. Well, all things are all things. Right. However, the context was money. So we can certainly apply it to issues concerning money, right? So I'm able to do all things through Christ who strengthens me still. You did well by sharing with me in my hardship. And you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church partnered with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts for my needs several times. Not that I seek the gift. But I seek the fruit that is increasing to your account. See, he knew it wasn't just he was getting benefited. He knew that when you sow seed, it grows right back up out of the ground. When you sow a kernel of corn, you should expect a stalk of of corn. And then ears of corn. And then a whole bunch of kernels, right? So you should expect that increase will come from where you plant. Then he says in verse 18, he says, But I have received everything in full and I have an abundance. I am fully supplied, having received from Ephroditus the things you provided, a fragrant offering, a welcome sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Man, these are promises that you can take all the way to the bank. It's good to take promises to the bank because that means there's a ching that follows. But now here's the thing. You don't ever want to look and desire the promise more than the promise giver. Because it's tragedy when we've, we love the gift more than the gift giver. Right? So what He's done and the promises He's given to us, those precious promises, He's given because He loved us, because His grace is enabling us to do what we can't do on our own. So let's keep our focus on Him, because it's about Him, right? The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing, all right? So, so let's keep our eyes on Jesus. So take a hold of your offering upon, or, or your tithe, and let's pray over it. Father, I thank You that You are a God of more than enough, that You are the God of super abounding abundance. Father, I thank You that You watch over Your Word to perform it and to accomplish it. I thank You, Father, that You are the God who, who does not allow Your Word to return to You void, but that it accomplishes what You sent it to do. So right now, Father, we call Your Word accomplished in our finances, that we are well supplied, that all our needs are met according to Your riches. And Father, we, we return the tithe to You. We give an offering to You and receive it as our love for You. In Jesus' name, and Amen. The ushers can wait on the people, and the people will give unto the Lord. Last week, if you were with us, we took a special uh, missions and alms offering, and 
the total of last week's special offering, not the, not the uh, general offering. So we are able to do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And that's a lot of seed in the ground. So if you're going to reap a harvest, then let's put our faith onto, Lord, we can do even more and more, and we will expand and grow. If you, ha- if you didn't pick up a bulletin, I advise you to do it because there's lots of fun dates on there that you're not going to want to miss. And you can just look over it. Um, I'm not going to spend much time on it. Uh, but I do want to point out one thing. In the middle of the bulletin is something about the youth between 6th and 12th grade are invited on a summer retreat. And so if you'd like to go be a part of it, it's not an official um, CWI Youth Impact event. Um, it is... Our, our friends, church, our brothers and sisters out of Titusville that are, are putting this on and inviting our youth to be a part of it. So if you'd like to be a part of that, is, is Janelle Ginder in here? She's not. Okay. Josh, uh, wave your hand at everyone. If you'd like to be a part of that and have more information about it, come and see Josh. I guess you know something about it, right? If you don't, quickly figure it out. <laughs> And um, the rest of the information on there about summer picnics and different things, you'll just have to pick one up and look at it.